I sat down to write this, this lecture, and I thought, what hubris. <laughs> How in the world can anyone um, summarize this vast literature in the field in 45 minutes. Um, you know, it's an absolutely impossible task. So I had to think fast, well, what kind of violence do I want to focus on? And I'd already given talks here, and some of you may have um, attended, um, on military violence. So obviously that was out. So what I propose to do today is to look at non-wartime killing, and that is um, murder. Now, even that, of course, is too big. So I'm going to focus down on one group of men, and they are all men, how they understood murder in the mid and late 20th century Britain, and crucially, how that understanding changed over time. And the group of people I'm going to focus on today are policemen and police doctors, or what used to be called police surgeons, today forensic medical examiners. But first, let's start 25th of February, 1946. Poor Mary otherwise known as Mary of Hendon, lies murdered in a field, her petticoats all array. Trainee de detectives pile out of a car and begin searching for traces of her attacker. They timidly prob poor Mary's body, they collect evidence from under her fingernails, and they photograph the crime scene. Eventually, they make a cast of the footprint of her assumed killer. Poor Mary of Hendon appeared in a documentary. It, it is, as we will see, this really emblematic representation of the female corpse. There was nothing decorious about the way poor Mary's um, body was arranged. Her legs splayed, her sexed body exposed. She is the typical cultural corpse. Female, young, attractive. And the detectives were proud students of the Hendon School for Detectives, which sounds like something that Alexandra Amikor Smith could have uh, made up if he wished to, you know, relocate from Botswana to uh, Greater London. But when it opened in 1934, the Hendon School for Detectives was, in fact, a very, very serious business. I'm going to show you right now a clip from a Pathé documentary which was called Science Fights Crime, in which poor Mary of Hendon appears. Mary of Hendon is the world's most murdered model. In every test case, she is planted in obscure spots with well-hidden clues. Student detectives are brought in to collect the evidence under the experienced eye of a detective inspector. Here's how it goes. You can, will you send for the doctor right away? And I want a photographer. And send a message to the superintendent. And I want some ropes around here with some stakes so I can rip all the air off. Very good. Discovery of the footprint of the man who struck poor Mary down calls for the taking of a plaster cast. After an initial spraying, plaster of Paris is poured into the depression. Left to harden, 
It picks up every detail of the murderer's shoe. Physicist, analyst, pathologist, serologist, and the expert in ballistics, allied with the 24-hour thoroughness of the detective. These are some of the odds against the lawbreaker. Detective Superintendent Rundle puts it this way. Training and good perception, backed by modern science, put us one ahead of the criminal. So there you have it, poor Mary of Hendon, life-size mannequin. She was heralded all over the press as the world's most murdered model. And the policemen were undergoing training in the latest scientific methods of dealing with interpersonal violence. This short documentary, short documentary was intended to publicize a new and more scientific approach to violent death. Now, this was no ordinary documentary. This man we see here is Sir Harold Scott, who presents the documentary. He's the commissioner of Metropolitan Police between 1945 and 1953, and he's clearly keen to show off the latest um, ways of dealing with violence that generally people were believed was on the increase. In the full documentary, which you can see in, on the Pathé website, um, police are taking through their paces. They are shown how to pick, up, um, pick out violent men in identification parades and how to defend themselves against knife attacks. So what was the Hendon School for Detectives? It opened 11 years before the Pathé film as the crime detection laboratory for the Metropolitan Police College. Every year, it put 300 men through its course. Its aim was to produce an ace detective every day. Scott himself was very progressive, unlike his predecessors, who tended to be military men with experience in the empire. London's top gun, as he liked very much to be called, was appointed from the civil service. He was also media savvy, profoundly aware of the public's increasing concern about violence. To the horror of senior police officers, he, the first time ever, uh, set up regular press conferences. It was totally in character, therefore, for Scott to appear in a Pathé documentary. He recognised that many Britons were profoundly anxious about what they believed was this sort of post-war crime wave. They were not actually being totally irrational. After all, a similar spike in violent crimes had occurred after the First World War. And in 1946, austerity, rationing, social disruption were widely perceived to be inciting this kind of violence, kind of murderous violence. Poor Mary of Hendon may have been nothing more than a murdered mannequin, but in the year before the documentary was broadcast, 218 murders had been reported to the police, and it was actually an annual figure that was not to be um, superseded until the 1970s. Now, Paul Mary of Hendon, I'm going to be arguing, I think is a really interesting, important lens uh, through which to reflect on violence in the immediate post-war uh, period. In this talk, I'm going to um, approach the subject of violent death from the point of view of police, 
and police doctors, police surgeons. In other words, those called first at the scene. I'm going to be focusing on texts that are not usually read in debates about violence. That is, police, textbooks, memos, photographs, reports and films, like the one starring poor Mary of Hendon. And I think they're an important uh, part of the social history of violence and the way it was understood in post-war Britain. Now, as we all know, in the history of violence, there has been a huge amount of scholarship about the ubiquitous representation of women as victims in art, in films, in fiction. And there's an abundant literature as well on murder itself, as well as the spectacle of evil during court sensational court cases. But I think a different story emerges when we look at policing accounts of the murdered corpse. The history I want to tell draws on, I think, very productive discussion by the philosopher and historian Ian Hacking about what he calls making up people. And by making up, he means constructing. He doesn't mean imagining or anything like that. Making up people. Or what he calls dynamic nominalism, in which... Our classifications and our classes conspire to emerge hand in hand, each egging each other on. Now, he is primarily concerned with what he calls the philosophical, the abstract processes of making up, constructing, making up people. But I want to get down and dirty about the way police and CID create categories of corpses, in this case, female ones. It's important for my story, although I don't have time to actually go into it uh, today, that until the late 19th century, police were actually given relatively few concrete instructions about how to actually read the murdered person's body. One of the first textbooks in Britain um, for police practitioners was Howard Vinson's Police Code, which didn't come out until 1881, late. And the first systematic manual in English was not published into Hans Gross's Criminal Investigation, 1906. Gross provided the first set of systematic guidelines to policemen, instructing them on the correct emotional comportment when visiting the scene, a scene of murderous violence. Even at texts addressing police doctors um, were sparse in terms of instructions, with earlier texts, in fact, doing nothing more than emphasizing the, um, the need for careful observation. In other words, not setting out specific practices or procedures or even drills. Thus, William Guy's Principle of uh, Forensic Medicine, 1844, merely noted that doctors called to a murder scene should use their ordinary powers of observation not only because they were one of the first witnesses of the corpse, but also because they were, in most cases, by far the best educated and intelligent witnesses. They were supposed to rely on judgment and foresight, as opposed to following any particular guidelines laid down by others. Now, these ways of sort of reading the scenes of violence, I'm going to be arguing, change um, from the 20th century, and specifically, I think, from the 1930s onwards. So what do we find when we shift 
to um, the later period, scenes of violence in the mid, from the late 1930s onwards, mid 20th century. Shifts in their forensic gaze, I believe, give further insights on violence and culture in post-war um, Britain. What I'm going to be arguing today is that there are four types of violence which dominate um, police and CID representations of the female corpse. These are representation, materialization, somatization, and decorporalization. Um, so, in other words, representation. Here I'm talking about poor Mary of Hendon's splayed body. Materialization, the production and social life of the material corpse. Somatization, women's body giving up its secrets. And decorporealization, erasure. In the process, which is broadly, broadly chronological, the worlds of the female corpse were dramatically diminished. In other words, what I'll be arguing is that she moves from representing the world to being an agent in a particular social context to her bodily parts and fluids being reduced to their separate corporeal components and finally to erasure. As the female corpse diminishes in each, at each of those steps, the worlds of other peoples, including that of the perpetrator, swell in proportion. Crucial in these processes are police, CID, and police doctors, all of whom collaborate in the unmaking of people. And I'm going to look at these in turn. Firstly, representation. Um, two things I think are important here. First is that all trainee murder investigating officers at this time were men. Indeed, there was a considerable hostility, actually huge literature in the, in the uh, police journals, really host, real hostility, to even the idea that women in the police force would be or should be exposed to such sordid scenes. Their jobs were to answer telephones, to deal with prostitution, and to monitor female delinquents, not to deal with bloody violence. For male CID officers, the typical, the representative victim of extreme violence was not the um, man beaten to death after a drunken brawl, the most common scenario. Rather, murder was represented through the figure of a woman raped and murdered by a stranger. In fact, a completely unusual, rare event occurrence. In other words, although a great, great many men than women were murdered in this period, the typical image of a victim of violence in these accounts was that of the violated woman. It's no coincidence, then, that the new CID trainees at the Hendon School for Detectives were taught to deal with murder using a female mannequin. Even before murder, the violent death was gendered. It was gendered in representation. The murdered corpse was um, sexualized, and as such, must be a female corpse. Sex, death, violence, somehow linked up together. Now, despite this female gendering of the murder, murder victims, she nevertheless was intended to stand in for the universal. Her body, in other words, her body represented every man. 
the police were taught common practices of evidence collection. These were universally applicable, gender-neutral practices. Um, searching for evidence under fingernails, observing lesions, bruising, ligature marks, and so on. But they were taught to do this through representations of the female body, after which, after which they were required to inquire into what this universal body lacks, that is, the sex specificities of female genitalia, the examination for evidence of sexual violation. Now, this lack in the universal um, corpse was important. The meaning of violence was read from the gender of the violated person. The murdered woman was always assumed to be the raped woman, even when there was absolutely no evidence of sexual violation, it was always assumed to have occurred. Now, obviously, this is the case when there was evidence of you know, genital lesions, semen, etc. But even in the absence, total absence, of these material traces, the murder of a woman was sexualized, even if only in the imaginary of the perpetrator. So what they thought the perpetrator's imaginary was. For example, his murderous rage was interpreted as the result of fantasy of rape or sadism, or in a slightly significantly later period of Oedipal lusts, which had been then deflected onto the stranger woman. Poor Mary of Hendon was placed not just in a field, but with her legs open, petticoats disturbed in a field. Policemen were taught to think immediately about a victim's chastity and her sexuality, her respectability. In fact, medical jurisprudence textbooks in this period were obsessed with the signs of virginity. They were taught to make distinctions in their reports and in their courtroom evidence between true, virginal victims and evidence that a woman was, and this is the term they use, well used, with the implication, of course, of promiscuity and prostitution. And by the way, that's actually used in forensic textbooks, that really disgusting phrase. Um, this making up, in other words, of the murdered woman had major implications in terms of justice. It made little difference that the dead body presented evidence of another person's violent rampage. She could still be guilty of an affront herself, a moral one, which made a crucial difference in terms of um, convictions and, of course, sentencing. The focus on the sexual aspect of the aspects of the murdered woman reflects anxieties about female sexuality, a fear that persisted and indeed was magnified after the death of the maiden. Now, representational practices also extended to the crime scene itself as a sort of, if you like, a constructed space. This, again, was a fairly expansive uh, cosmos with a fairly standard staging. That is, the corpse resides in the center, and evidence can be found in ever-widening concentric circles around it. As historian um, Ian Burney has put it, the crime scene was a distinct analytic space bounded conceptually and operationally by explicit rules of practice. 
This way of staging the female corpse mirrored representational artistic practices with, of course, one absolutely crucial difference. This was rather real and not aesthetically pleasing. They refused to allow, these, these, these um, representations refused to allow witnesses to repress the knowledge of flesh and bones and fluids. They were resolutely real and relentlessly materialistic. Forensic photography, I think, was really important in this regard. If you look at early forensic handbooks, instruction manuals, there was not any attempt whatsoever to anonymize uh, the bodies. Eyes were not covered, the specificities of an individual was laid bare, including sexed specificity, sexual organs. It's no coincidence, too, that these bodies were typically raced other. Um, what I mean here is that in the forensic photography of murdered corpses in this period, there is a disproportionate focus on non-white bodies. Often, um, I can't promise this, but it seems to be often the photographs are taken in imperial contexts and ported, brought back. This is especially the case in photography of raped and, murders, raped and murdered women, nearly all of whom are raced white in forensic photography of this period. This is closely related to my second theme, the materialization or the production of the social life of the material female corpse. The function of police and CID officers was to make her violent death into some kind of meaningful event in which there were social participants. These included victim, perpetrator, families, friends, as well as themselves as evidence collectors. This latter participant, in other words, themselves as evidence collectors, was getting increasing attention from the mid-20th century. In the context of the new scientific police milieu being introduced by the Metropolitan Police Commissioner Scott in the immediate post-war period, insentient corpses were increasingly pitted against all too sentient policemen. Emotional regimes began being attached to murder investigations. They came increasingly to the fore. Now, in part, this was because of a new emphasis being placed in that period, immediately post-war I'm talking about here, on the professionalization of the job, including unionization, the need to raise the status and also attractiveness of policing. Emotion-rich Practices of viewing the murdered corpse moved center stage. After all, as one CID officer complained, death figures quite largely in our lives, and outside the city and boroughs, the duty of certifying death was not given to a uh, permanent uh, coroner, but fell on the man on the beat. Uh, yet, as another complained, this is 1955, Yet instructions on how to conduct a thorough viewing of the body and its surroundings are not laid down. The Hendon School for Detectives was one response to this concern, by, uh, concern for police feelings. And it did not, of course, go uncontested. There was considerable unease about which emotional regime was appropriate when faced with extreme violence. Just before the school opened, 
the Police Review published a cautious article setting out the different views. On the one hand, it supported giving officers a practical acquaintance with and an understanding of the scientific approach to viewing the dead body. On the other hand, they noted the importance. It was one of those articles that says, well, on the one hand this, or on the other hand that, and doesn't come to any conclusions. On the other hand, they noted the importance of practical know-how, including intuitive familiarity. The police review believed that it was not wise to sideline officers of that old school with their untiring persistence, dogged tenacity, and infinite patience. Now, what was at stake in these debates was competing visions of police masculinity, the dogged, muscular variety, as opposed to the scientific, the objective one, lauded by, of course, Commissioner um, Scott. An attempt to reconcile these two visions was undertaken time and again in um, uh, the police, uh, police journals and, and police writings. One attempt, I could give you lots more, was undertaken by Frederick Orton in his book, Murder Investigation. He noted that not every police officer is tempor temperamentally suited to the investigation of murder. Most obviously, an officer should not have an excitable temperament, and indeed might even be seen as apparently slow-minded, someone who takes his time. In general, he concluded, attempting to reconcile two opposing views, policemen involved in medical investigations should have a particularly phlegmatic temperament to which is allied a taste for scientific research. In this second approach, uh, then, the world of the female corpse, who nevertheless represented every man, was narrowed from the universal to a specific social world, including the individual dead body within an environmental and social context. So in other words, the corpse had a social life. Police were required to place that corpse within agetic relationships they had to give poor Mary of Hendon a life story. This narrative was not, of course, supposed to elicit an empathetic, empathetic, empathetic response. Quite the opposite. That forensic gaze was, um, uh, was required, was gendered objective. The policeman or CID officer was required to stoically set the corpse within a context of signs, the footprints, the fabric in the tree, the skin under her nails. The body points to something else, the perpetrator. As Martin Innes noted in his analysis of contemporary murder um, scenes, detectives assemble an account of the incident from array, an array of often contested and conflicting information sources. The ways in which the act is defined and explained and thus the meaning it is attributed, do not inhere within the act itself, but as socially produce. To use Ian Hacking's language, they make up the, the body. The aim of officers was from the start a multiplicity of meanings and to eventually arrive at the one true narrative. Crucially, the victim was posited as an agent. 
she had acted in a way that led to her fate. Even in the most sadistic murder, part of the responsibility still lay with her. No matter how excessive that violence, his violence, she was given agency. My third theme is somatization, what the woman's dead body reveals. In other words, the secrets that the corpse gives up to the police. Increasingly, the collection of evidence was standardized and emphasis placed on specialization. As you saw in the film at the very beginning, you know, they recited a whole range of different specialties um, uh, um, supposed to you know, uh, analyze the body. Um, police surgeons were increasingly taught to divide this material corpse into its component parts fibers, skin, blood, etc., etc. The whole material corpse needed to be recoded and translated, indeed, into something else. In other words, the dead body was relocated in this move away from its social context to become pure soma. Increasingly, the bits and pieces themselves became active witnesses, the techno-scientific witnesses to violent death that offered up indisputable truths, unlike human witnesses. These material traces also encouraged discrete and singular interpretations of violence rather than the social one that I discussed in my second point. And again, note we've gone from the universal to the social, now to the singular. The process of somatization also appropriated this dead body, making it part of a different authority, that is, police science. These, these practices of de-individualizing began the process of erasure. After all, the signs that were being read were taken from other signs. This wound means that. A particular wound was recognized because of its resemblance to other wounds. The detective's job was arrête de mort through samples and collection of evidence, turning material soma into evidence. Now, of course, as anyone who has read detective fiction knows, science has a very, very, very long history um, of involvement in murder. But in terms, my point is, in terms of medical jurisprudence, there have been major shifts in what was considered to be the most relevant uh, form of evidence. So if you look at early 19th century texts on murder, you'll see that they place extraordinary emphasis on poison. Although stabbing, bludgeoning, shooting were the main ways of killing civilians at least, um, these were regarded as rather straightforward compared to chemical means of procuring a corpse. This was why the Metropolitan Police Commissioner Scott was appealing in that documentary. He was heralding in, self-consciously, heralding in a period where police and CID used ultraviolet rays infrared photography, fingerprinting. On the one hand, the idea of policemen using these new scientific technologies and techniques was relatively new. In Britain, the Hendon School for Detectives was at the vanguard of teaching these practices to officers. On the other hand, 
it was increasingly recognized that technologies themselves were becoming more and more intricate. And so independent forensic laboratories had to be established. In Britain, the first forensic science laboratory was established by Lord Trenchard, 1934, the Hendon Lab. The co-opting of science for solving crime gathered pace in the 1940s. Commissioner Smith admitted that it took time for detective officers to realise fully the ways in which the laboratory could help. And, feeling it was important to establish close contact between the CID and laboratory, I took an early opportunity of moving it to Scotland Yard, where it is more easily accessible. As the resources of the laboratory became more and more widely known, their calls upon it steadily increased. But this created tensions, particularly between the police and the people in the laboratories, or between competing authorities, criminal versus scientific. For example, at the opening of the uh, Bristol Forensic Science Laboratory 1946, the Home Secretary emphasised the need for the closest cooperation between the police and scientific experts. To make it work for the laboratory scientists, though, the rank and file of police also had to be specially trained and properly instructed in the fundamentals of science as applied to criminal investigation. This was important since the discovery and preservation of objects and traces found at the scene of the crime depend in the main upon the detective or especially in county forces, the uniformed constable, who is the first on the scene of the crime or happens to be responsible for the investigation. They did not, police did not need to be trained explicitly in laboratory work, but there was an agreement that they needed some knowledge of forensic science if they were to objectively describe, interpret, and give meaning to violence and the corpse. So in other words, this we've traveled a long way from um, the disdain and unease with scientific uh, methods of, um, by older generation of police who believed in intuition. In this new regime of dealing with the murdered corpses, the fundamental premise was that truth was discoverable inside the body. Mutual antagonism between the police and the forensic scientists grew, however, and, of course, the winners being the scientists, for whom we have to thank for the endless TV adaptations of CSI. The final theme is the decorporealization or erasure of um, the body. This happened in two ways. First, there was, of course, no room in the police or CID discourses around violence for the victim's pain. Here I'm not alluding to Elaine Scarry's um, famous argument about pain being resistant to language. Rather, it's simply that the discourse left no space for the consideration of her emotions. Self-defense cuts to the hand when hands were not intended to conjure up um, terrifying desperation, but a particular type of knife. The branch used to beat a victim was nothing more than a named shrub that could be found in the immediate environment. 
Now, this is not, of course, to say that all emotions were erased. I've already mentioned the increased emotion, attention sorry, paid to the emotions of policemen at the scene. Equally important, though, um, the emotions of perpetrators were also increasingly um, invoked. His manic fury or calculated cruelty. Indeed, her pain was not even, to use the phrase employed by the yellow press of the time, unspeakable. In police um, texts, I've actually only, and I've gone through all of them, <laughs> I've actually only found one exception to the statement I just made. This exception was published in the Police Review of 1955 and significantly was entitled Murder Without Tears. The author wrote that, on occasion, but not very often, some attention is given to the pain and suffering of the victims of crime and those closely associated with them. However, even he, in this one exception I found, immediately followed this statement by insisting that, much more often, especially when murder is involved, the interest is concentrated on the criminal. In other words, this only the one exception I found to my statement where he acknowledges victim suffering only to immediately declare it irrelevant by objectifying and delocating the violence, its sting, its horror, if you like, was removed. Now, even in those cases where the victim's emotions might be imagined to be most prominent, rape murder, sadistic murder, for example, the focus was still on his, the perpetrator's, feelings, excesses, of violence were categorized under concepts such as perversion, sadism, psychopathy, that is, his identity. In this way, her pain became subordinate to his power. Importantly, in cases of sadistic uh, murder, attention was only paid to the perpetrator's excesses. The whole debate was conducted in terms not of the rape murder itself, which was rape murder was constructed as normal, as I mentioned at the beginning, normal violence. The murdered woman was always assumed to have been violated. But at what point, the, question, the debate became, at what point did this normal violence become excessive and therefore sadistic violence? In other words, the sadist was made up as a person, an identity, um, as a perversion of excess and not a deviation from gender norms. As one commentator explained, sadistic rape murder was simply an exaggeration of the rudimental animal or savage impulse to conquer the woman in connection with sexual union. In, this, in these texts, police and CID um, are drawing explicitly time and again, on the works of the late 19th century psychiatrist Richard von Krabb-Ebbing, frequently quoting him as arguing that sadism was nothing more than an excessive and monstrous pathological intensification of phenomena which accompany the psychical vita sexualis in men. In police texts, Krabb-Ebbing can be heard explaining that in the intercourse of the sexes, the active or aggressive role belongs to the man. The woman remains passive, defensive. It affords a man great pleasure to win a woman, to conquer her. Under normal conditions, a man meets obstacles, 
which it is, a, it is his part to overcome, and for which nature has given him an aggressive character. This aggressive character, however, under pathological conditions, may likewise be excessively developed and express itself in an impulse to seduce absolutely the object of desire, even to destroy and kill it. Second, in a related point, the erasure involved a move, if you like, from her body to that of the perpetrator. His body, mind, personality. Um, this is a separate and huge discussion, but we can talk about it um, in, in discussion in uh, five minutes. Um, but what you see is this focus on the perpetrator, again, undergoes major shifts in the period that we're looking at from, in shorthand, um, degeneracy, a la Lombrosco, that of moral insanity, the likes of um, the forensic uh, psychologist Pritchard, to the murderous perversions of the late 19th century, Kraft Ebbing, who they are drawing on most frequently, um, to attention to personality from the 1970s. So what we see that in broad terms, these shifts represent a move from insanity and degeneration to questions of motivation and personality. In other words, he, the perpetrator, becomes every man. This is the final erasure. The gendered female, every man, with whom I started this talk, disappears. And in her place is the gendered man. In other words, the true universal. In conclusion, in this talk, I have focused on changes in the way the police and the CID read the bodies of women who had been subjected to extreme violence. The belief that they, and slightly later, with the help of forensic scientists, could generate ob objective truth from assessing and measuring physical markers changed dramatically over time. But I think one crucial moment was in this immediate post-war years, when forensic assessment of the physiological body reiterated its constructed rather than intrinsic nature. Commissioner Scott was part of this modernization of the police force and also the making up of that female of the corpse. New bureaucracies and technological and scientific methods were introduced in addition to professionalization and unionization of the police force. The police text I've looked at this evening engaged in four ways of making up female corpses. Representation, poor Mary of Hendon's splayed body. Materialization, the production social life of the material female corpse. Somaticization, women's giving up its secrets. And decorporealization, erasure. As Hacking, I think, rather wittily put it in uh, relation to suicides, which he works on, um, even the unmaking of people has been made up, constructed. Poor Mary of Hendon may have been the nothing more than the world's most murdered model, but it was relevant that she was a female mannequin. Her body represented as akin to nature, 
rather than culture, her splayed body a privileged site of gender. The forensic management of violence I've explored here, of course, is only partial. I mean, a more complete um, and complex account would, of course, have to include something else that's happening very strongly in this period, which is massive shifts in things like paperwork and the statistical labour involved in policing the murdered body. And, of course, the story I've told here changes immeasurably by the, uh, from the mid-1980s with the DNA crime scene and the emergence of uniformed uh, crime scene investigators. But, as they say, that is after my period and I've run out of time. So thank you very much. <laughs>